My name is Michael Barkley. I just published a biography of the tragically hip called The Never-Ending Present. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Number two in Canada. Number two. Yeah, it's, it's funny to say. Not in the bathroom sense. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Number, the, the, the number the, two book in Canada. Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Not even just Canadian nonfiction. No. Nonfiction. Like nonfiction anywhere. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Thanks. Um, it's, it's hard not to do well mm-hmm. with this sort of topic, the subject. You could also mess it up. You could also, you could definitely also mess it yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious, um, and I heard your interview with Alana Gay. Oh, yeah. At, uh, at the Horseshoe. Yeah. Um, and she's fantastic. She asked you some, as I was listening to that, I go, those are every, everything I want to ask. <laughs> well, most people listening to this weren't there. <laughs> no, no, so, no. You could ask all packed. the same questions if packed, you want. Though. Sure. Yes. Um, but I wanted to ask different yeah. questions. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm really really curious about this. Um, as you were, I, I guess the book came out of an article or a series of articles that you wrote for McLean's. Uh, that's where the idea came from. Yeah. So, yeah. so during that last tour, I wrote a bunch of things for McLean's mm-hmm. um, that culminated in a big piece uh, that ran just after the final concert. Yeah. Actually, no, it went online before the final concert. It was in print after cover story, um, and then I wrote a couple other things that fall as well, and. Uh, they got a great response, and I I was also a little disappointed in other things that had run uh, during that time. I felt like a lot of what was written hmm. was kind of superficial, like rah rah Canada's band, yeah. the end. And I thought, well, that's there's a lot more to this band yeah. than that. Sure. And uh, and it struck me that the full story had never really been told. So I I thought there was a void there, and I I just wanted this book to exist, whether I wrote it or not. Mm-hmm. I wanted this book to exist, yeah. so I wrote it. So the the the, the question I have was because right at the beginning of the book, you talk about the they have not wanting there to be a book. That's the preface. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first line of. That's the, book. the first. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so before, so I'm curious when that first line came to you. I'm not a writer, so I have no clue if you start at the first line or if you sort of put everything together, but. Um, Knowing that they didn't want a book to be written, mm-hmm. um, did you decide to write it whether they were on board or not? Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I kept their management abreast of the whole thing. I, I uh, floated the idea by them several times before I formally started the book. Mm-hmm. Never heard back. And then I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. So I yeah. signed a book contract. I had a deadline. Yeah. The day I signed the contract, I wrote them again. I said... Uh, well, I am doing this. Yeah. Uh, I would love any help you'd like to offer, whether whether or not you want to be interviewed, just yeah. some help with contacts, like just you know anything. And they wrote back to say, uh, we will neither endorse nor assist you. We're working on something of our own. Okay. But nobody knew anything about that. Yeah. And nobody I interviewed knew anything about that. And nobody in publishing knew anything about that. So I just took that to mean they're reserving the right to uh, do their own thing eventually. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. And I also, and not having them involved is also liberating in a way because then you can write whatever you want. You mm-hmm. can be as opinionated as you want. You can bring in other parts of the story, as many other parts of the story into it as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, I don't think an official biography of the hip would talk about Gordowney's solo records as in depth. Sure. Um, and I don't think an official biography would talk about. Um, 
you know, there's a whole chapter there about like other artists who faced uh, terminal uh, diseases mm -hmm. or debilitating ones like Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a chapter just about uh, lyrics as poetry in general, you know, mm -hmm. tying it into Bob Dylan's Nobel. And so, like, I felt like there were so many things in the Tragedy of the Hips career that spark larger conversations. So I wanted to have all those conversations in one book. Nice. Like, just have like a big salon and get a bunch of really smart people talking yeah. and, uh, and talk about all these things that the Tragically Hip has always made us think about. Have you heard since the book has been... Doesn't like it. Okay. He saw three paragraphs and decided it was crap. Okay. Yeah. But, you know... Uh, does I, that bug you or does it... Or is it like... Well, by his own admission, he read three paragraphs. Okay. So if yeah. I submitted a book report in school that, yeah. and I'd only read three paragraphs, I'd get a failing yeah. grade. So... Um, I, I just I think he doesn't like the idea of it existing, yeah. um, so he hasn't bothered to read it. And he might even be confused with one of the other books on the market. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's also talked about writing his own memoir, so yeah. he's he's got his own interest in that. Sure. Um, but uh, again, I think it's a very different story than they would tell. Yeah. You know. So uh, you know, I'll be one of the first people buying Rob Baker Rob Baker's book when it mm -hmm. comes out. Um, but I don't think anything coming out of the hip camp would resemble this book. And I'm very mm. proud of this book. And I'm, I've got a lot of great response nice. uh, about it from people who are in it and yeah. from uh, people who are huge fans of the hip and people who didn't really care about the hip. Because yeah. I wrote it for those people, too. I, I wanted to explain, like, okay, well, what was it about this band, you know? Mm. Like, I have friends of mine who, you know, for whatever reason, were too cool for school or just <laughs> don't like this kind of music or whatever. Sure. and. And those people have told me they really enjoyed it too. You know, my 79-year-old aunt really enjoyed it too. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. There you go. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I wrote it for obviously hip fans who yeah, yeah. who maybe might not remember some of this stuff or or had forgotten it or um, or didn't know it in the first place. And, but I also wrote it for the people who were just curious. Yeah. Right? Um, they were never your favorite band though, were they? I'm, tr I'm trying to remember. I think you, Lana, asked you, may have asked you this. Um, or you may have mentioned it in a conversation somewhere. I I saw them many times. Okay. I own every record. Oh wow. Um, and but I I think my common response to that is uh, now that I've met some of the biggest tragically hip fans in the world, I could never claim to be <laughs> one. Because <laughs> yes. that is a very very high bar to reach. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Um, but I think I'm like most people. Uh, you know, I, I, I always enjoyed their music. I always followed them. Some records really hit for me. Some didn't. Yeah. I, I would go several years without seeing them. Um, but uh, they always fascinated me. Uh, but yeah, I'm, not, I'm certainly not an obsessive fan. Yeah. No. It's interesting because when, uh, when I first heard about uh, Gord's illness, uh, soon after my brother and I were having, having a conversation, um, and it was like, it, we, for us, the hip were one of those bands and their music, it was always in the background. It was always there, mm -hmm. right? Um, they were never our favorite band, um, but it was always a band that we were curious about what the next record was about. Right. Um, and I think he had seen the hip a few times. I had never seen him until their last concert in Toronto. Right. Um, wow. And... Yeah, they, they were sort of like we were talking about, you know, how you, you, you might drive from, you know, the, the west end of Toronto out to like Pickering or something. Mm -hmm. And after a while, he's going, wow, I've been on the road for half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, and the hip were like that, where, you know, you'd be on the highway of life 
and they would you know Tom Cochran's Highway. There you go, and they're, and they're an exit. <laughs> right. You know, they're 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 they just they're there. Mm-hmm. You're not sure where the time went, but the hip mm-hmm. always seemed to be, mm-hmm. you know, around. They're a signpost. Yeah, and th- and mm-hmm. that's what that's what they wore for me. Mm-hmm. Um, why were they so? I don't want to say huge because I don't know if they were ever a huge band. Had, I th- were they? I think they were. I yeah? think I mean they sold eight million records in this country, hmm. which has thirty three million people. Yeah. Right. So um, I, I talk about in the book like we think of a band like Nickelback as being. Uh, more successful because they're successful around the world, right? Sure. And they've sold 50 million records, yeah. which is a crap load of records. Yeah. Um, but I looked at how many they've sold in Canada, and they've sold three and a half million. Yeah. Mm. Still a lot of records. Yeah. But the Scratchy Hip have sold eight. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I feel like per capita, mm. they were cer- were certainly a bigger band. Yeah. I mean, there's other factors there too. Nickelback are popular in the time of. Uh, uh, torrenting and, and streaming, so and like there might be a bit of a different metric sure. there. But uh, no, but they they were massively popular, and uh, I think I was honestly a bit surprised by the outpouring of emotion in 2016 because although I was a fan and the news really gutted me, um, I felt like uh, you know there's a bit of a Logan's Run thing in in <laughs> culture and Canadian culture in particular, like. We take people for granted on their twelfth record, or you know, it's like, oh yeah, those guys again, whatever, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and uh, frankly, the hip were kind of at that stage, like they weren't. Their new albums didn't get a lot of radio play. No. Uh, they're mostly just selling to the hardcore fans. Um, and uh, now, mind you, the last record they did put out that followed the news was a bit of a left turn and was much beloved, also from people who hadn't paid attention in a long time. It was a record I'd wanted them to make for a long time. Hmm. So, I mean, one of the what-ifs of this story is, uh, you know, where would this band have have gone next? Uh, I think they had finally come to the place where they were no longer, like, angling to get on the radio because they kind of realized that probably wasn't going to happen to them anymore. No, rock is not on the radio anymore, is it? Well, that's that's a whole other thing, yeah. But um, so, and apparently they told their producer, uh, Kevin Drew and Dave Hamlin, they said, you know, really, we just want like three or four new songs to play live. That's their main objective. And other than that, we can do whatever we want. Mm. And I think that led to a much more creative record, knowing that, you know, they can go out and play fully, completely, fully and completely sure. uh, for an entire tour. Like, that's what they did in 2015. Mm-hmm. Play their most popular record, which is a thing that people do now, right? Yeah. Like Bruce Springsteen tours the river or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they could go out and do that and then go into the studio and do whatever they want mm. and make something awesome. Yeah. You know? Um, what, what, uh, let's get back to the hit, but I want to I want to sort of take a turn here. I want to ask you a question eventually too, or at least a couple. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you, you could ask me whenever you want to ask me. Okay, well, can I yeah. go back to you and your brother? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things I encountered uh, when I was reading everything in 2016 and everything else was there was, there was definitely like backlash. So like, first of all, there's this onslaught of love and there was this kind of like, thing like you if you don't like the hip you're not canadian or mm. not necessarily framed in the negative but like yeah this this thing that like the, the hip is the most canadian thing ever yes right so yes. there's there's two sides of that i was in buffalo last week yeah i reading to a large number of buffalonians or yeah. whatever they're called <laughs> <laughs> um and they were so grateful and excited that this book exists and part of the reason, because the part I was reading was the part, the chapter about America. 
and they said like as as fans in Buffalo, we feel really negated by this notion that the hip is Canada's band because it's like we 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 love this band as much as any Canadian, sure. and this myth of American failure really like washes out our existence in the narrative, huh. you know. Uh, they didn't use those words. Yeah. <laughs> they were all very drunk by the time they were talking to me. But I found that fascinating. And uh, and so conversely, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people in Canada are like, like uh, you know, do I have to show you my passport and prove that I yeah. can not like the hip and still be a Canadian? Yeah. And then there's this also, there's this other narrative that was in this TVO piece and, uh, and an episode of Canada Land talked about this as well, that the hip were just like... Uh, a thing for white people between the ages of 35 and 55. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I also remember during the summer of 2016, someone, another white person, telling me that, well, you know, it's not like the hip or forever, but it's mostly white people. Like, I don't think a lot of, you know, indigenous people are really into the hip. Uh-huh. And I was like, really, is that your supposition, <laughs> Mr. White Man? Because I could show you a lot of communities where sure. that's not the case. Yeah. Um, so, so the hip for you were always just in the background. Did you ever get the sense that it was, it was, it was like this almost tribal thing? Like it was like a white Canada thing? No, I, I yeah. never, I never thought of that. Um, they were just a. Um, I, I, I remember to this day. I don't know if it was grade anywhere between grade seven and grade nine, where I'm listening to my my Walkman, um, uh, blow it high dough, and mm-hmm. and I just thought. How old are you, first of all? I'm just curious. Generationally, this is important. Um, early 40s. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you said vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're about five years younger than me. So you're like one high school generation younger than me. Probably. Yeah. Right. And and so I remember, I, I, I vividly remember walking back from school over the hill, uh, you know, home and, and, and hearing that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and thought, that's a really cool song. And they just listened to the next hip song and the next hip song. Um but you know a few things. Number one, you know, was was whether I was in that income bracket, family-wise, mm-hmm. um, or whether you know just traditionally I wasn't a wasn't a uh, a, a record buyer, mm-hmm. or a tape buyer, right, or a CD buyer, or a concert goer, right. You know, everything to me was CFTR music, right. Back when CFTR played music, yes, <laughs> um, and then it went to. I think Q107 was the next big radio station. Yeah. So you're a rock guy, yeah, though, so rock I was, pop guy. Yeah, so yeah. I was, a, you know, was yeah. was was a rock guy, and so I had uh, a fondness for them as much as any other rock band, right. whether they were Canadian or not Canadian. Right. Yeah. What Greg and I had a, uh, we recorded an episode about this because we 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 totally disagreed, where there was this, um, the. The Kingston concert yeah. that was televised all yep. across Canada, uh, and many people were calling it the Canadian moment. Right, um, and and I said, why? I, I, <laughs> yes, I ten or eleven million Canadians yeah. watched it, yeah. but twenty million didn't. And right. yes, eleven is a big number. Yeah, I will grant you that. Yeah. But um, I told him, ask a bunch of bunch of teenagers yeah. whose fathers didn't grow up with the hip, yep. and they're into Drake maybe. Of course, they they're are. maybe to Absolutely. something else, right? Yeah. And so, is it the same as this romantic notion of uh, Bobby Orr scoring mm-hmm. or um, Henderson scoring for for mm-hmm. Team Canada? Yeah. Um, and I said maybe it will be that, but Canada's more 
multicultural. It's there. It's more diverse now mm-hmm. than it was 30, 40 years ago. Yep. So, for f- music fans, yeah, for people who um, were aware at this moment in time, mm-hmm. maybe it'll be for them. Yeah. My son, ten years from now. Yeah. Uh, we took him to the concert. Yep. We watched uh, at, at home. Yeah. This this won't be it for him. That'd still be a memorable experience. If you took, I mean, I'm assuming he's fairly young. He's he was 2016. He was 10. Yeah, I mean yeah. That, that's that's still a formative experience. Whether yeah, or not I'm he sure enjoyed it or not, yeah, he's yeah. going to remember those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But you yeah. know, it won't be. You yeah. know, he's going to remember when we go see. Oh my goodness, this this pop back. I can't remember the name. They sing that song, Thunder. Thunder? I don't know what the name of it is. Not ACDC. No, no, not that Thunder. No. It's, it's, a, it's a pop song that, okay. that, that, that for yeah. some reason plays on 88.1. Yeah. But we're going to that. He'll remember that one, yes. that concert, more than he'll remember yeah. you know, me taking him to his first concert, which was Arcade Fire. Hey, my child's first you, as well. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, you know, but I, I can understand the argument. Yeah. You know, that mm. it was quote unquote white Canada's. Yeah. Band, yeah, you know, because it was they—they they weren't my band. I didn't, yeah. you know, what I—I I don't know if I had a band. You know, I'm a huge yeah. Neil Young fan. Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, but I also think that I mean, it's an interesting time in rock music. Like, hmm. rock music is not what it was. So, no, it's so not. If this happened to not necessarily the hip, but any rock band ten years ago, that would be more of a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, d- I think it's significant because 11 million is a large number. Yeah, it's more than anything else. Like sure. like outside of Olympic hockey, nothing else gets those gets those numbers, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it was also advertised like crazy. You drive anywhere in Toronto, you see billboards. Really? Um, I don't I did. Really? Yeah. Advertising what the uh, the, concert, the CBC thing the or CBC thing? Oh. On T, you know whether yeah. you know obviously I. Again, I'm, I'm a CBC FM yeah. listener, you know, Metro Morning and stuff. So they talked yeah. about it forever right. on there. And maybe it's because I'm in advertising, so I see all this stuff. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm hyper aware. Yeah. Um, but everyone knew. Yeah, of course. About yeah. the concert yeah. coming up. But the other thing is that um, it's also, I feel like a lot of people watch it who don't care about their music. They wanted to see the human drama. Yeah. Like I quote um, uh, Shad in the book uh, mm. says something like, you know, uh, people watch sports for the human drama, and mm. uh, this is like the human drama, but with music. Yeah. You know, and it's not a game. That's fair. No, it's life. Like, it's life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought that was really interesting That's parallel. Interesting. Yeah. You know, that is really interesting. Talking about rock, I, w- I sort of want to make this left turn here. Sure. Um, you wrote you wrote, before this. You wrote another book. Um, Have not been the same. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a. Covering rock music from 85 to 95 in yeah. Canada. Yeah, so that's my high school university years. That's your, okay. <laughs> and as, as has been scientifically proven, those are the years when music hits you the hardest. Really? And that's the music that stays with you the rest of your life. Yeah, because it's when your brain's forming, you're just a sponge for all that stuff. Like, you know, I can remember lyrics to songs I don't even like that came out during that time period, right? Like, Fair. I'm sure it's the same yeah. as true as you no, for high so school, true. university, you know? Bunch of all those Pearl Jam songs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um... I don't know if you answered in this book because I haven't read your other book, but mm-hmm. what, does Canadian rock have a sound? Is there a sound for Canadian rock? In um, your opinion? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, uh, rock is a pretty broad term. Mm-hmm. It's almost as broad as jazz, which can mean anything, they, oh, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, it does. For me, as mm-hmm. an Ontario resident. So ah. I know that. BC people. Southern would, Ontario resident. As a <laughs> Southern Ontario <laughs> resident. As a, someone who grew up in Scarborough, Ontario, yeah. Mr. Kanji. Um, 
uh, yeah, to me it is. It's the sound of uh, uh, the the hip, the sky diggers, uh, mm. crash Vegas, uh, uh, weeping tile, Kathleen Edwards. Like, there's a certain guitar sound that I've I've dubbed Canadian Shield Rock before, because <laughs> okay. it just like for whatever reason it just it sounds like driving up and down the 401 to me. Um, and other bands like Fit 440 and Grapes of Wrath from the West Coast certainly uh, tap into that as well. Weaker Thans from Winnipeg, uh, Joel Plaskett from Halifax. Mm. I, I I think there's a I think there's a unity in sound among those people. Now, mind you, you know I was never uh, an Our Lady Peace fan or a mm. Tea Party fan or you know Finger Eleven or whatever. Yeah. Like like there's a whole other realm of Canadian rock that they're is... they're all going on tour. Yeah, all which did together I think most of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but. Uh, uh, there's that whole aspect of Canadian rock that never really spoke to me. So that's mm. that's a whole other thing. So that's very much my bias, right? Interesting. And well, there was a bit after Universal. For me, they, when did they come out? Which? All, all three bands. Tea Party. Like Arlene late Peace. 90s, kind of. Yeah. So mid, like, mid to late 90s. Yeah. yeah. So that's like the tail end yeah. of, um, of rock. But yeah. yeah. Um, where where d- So the, the hips, would you... Does the hips sound... You know the sound that they have. Um, does it fit nicely into that Canadian sound, or are they distinct from that? Uh, no, I think they are it, and I think they have a huh. lot of descendants and disciples. Um, and their sound also evolved. I mean, they started out very much a roadhouse band. I mean, they were playing, you know, four sets a night, five nights a week yeah. in small towns across Ontario, and and you got to play to the crowd. <laughs> so yeah. they were. They were definitely a roadhouse band in the beginning, and then they really evolved uh, through the 90s. And then um, in the 2000s, they made some really interesting pop records with Bob Rock. And then, mm-hmm. like I said, this last record was like a whole other left turn. I mean, you put on the first record and you put on Man Machine Poem, and it's hard to believe it's the same band, you know? Interesting. So does, does even the Tragically Hip have a sound? Huh. Like I feel like that evolved quite a bit over the space of 26 or 27 years, whatever the... The poetry of the lyrics mm-hmm. is there, though, I think, mm-hmm. still. Yeah, and that also evolved a bit, too. Like, I, I had a great chat with John K. Sampson of The Weaker Thans, and he said, uh, who's an incredible poet, and just, he's one of those songwriters that I would just as soon read him on the page as I would listen mm. to one of his songs, you know? Sure. Uh, like, Joni Mitchell's the same way, and Leonard Cohen's the same way. Like, I, I get as much from those words reading them cold as yeah. I do when they're attached to melody and everything. John K. Sampson is like that to me. But anyway, he said that like every time uh, he heard a new hip record, he went with certain expectations like, oh, this is kind of how this is going to go. And then he'd listen to the lyrics and go, whoa, that's no. Like mm. chords taking a different approach here to whatever, to meter or to metaphor. Or to, or he's playing with some notion of his words a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think his writing is unique. I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of many people who write like him. Um, there are certainly elements of Joni Mitchell, who is underrated as a lyricist. Um, there's elements of uh, Nico Case, who's also underrated as a lyricist. Um, there's elements of late period Paul Simon, hmm. in terms of like collision of surreal images, and and uh, um, but but he's not any of those people, hmm. and he's he he really is his own thing, and uh, that's part of what fascinates. Uh, me about him and also that he speaks to so many people yeah. like the, the swath of of society that that relate to his lyrics 
and take things away from his lyrics, even if they're incorrect. <laughs> I mean, I feel I've I've, sure. I've read take a, whatever, yeah, different messages. Yeah. And and there's a, you know, he himself once told me like a song like Fifty Mission Cap. For a lot of people, the, the only important thing in that song is the line "One the leaves the cup." Yeah. Then everyone goes, "Yeah," you know. Never mind the fact that it's a tragic story about a guy dying in a plane, plane crash. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and a lot of music is like that. A lot of pop music is like that. Certainly a lot of disco music is like that, where there might only be one line in the song. Yeah. But it, it, the repetition of it really speaks to you, and you get swept up in the euphoria of the music, right? Yeah. Um, so he's a really interesting writer that way. Like, I think of the song Courage, which is one of their most beloved songs. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, the three verses are completely unrelated. The last yeah. one's lifted right from a Hugh McLennan novel. The first one's just about watching a band through a bunch of dancers, and the other one's about pissing on your surroundings. And then, <laughs> in the, in, and then the choruses are all about courage. Yeah. And sometimes it comes, and then the next verse it doesn't. And then the third one it does, couldn't come at a worse time. What does that song mean? I don't know. But when Gord Downey had a terminal condition, yeah. that was one of the songs that people really That's latched song, onto because yeah. all they need to hear yeah. is the word courage. Yeah. And then it's courage for Gord, and then it's everything else, and yeah. that song takes on a deep, like a deep meaning for people, yeah. um, regardless of what it may or may not be about. It's interesting because when when I've so now I I listen to their music differently mm-hmm. today, right? Uh, than before, only because of this hyper spotlight that's mm. been put on the lyrics. Yep. And I I I used to listen to them just loving the layers of the music in there. Hmm. Um, you know, with, with the lead guitar and then the rhythm yep. and then just this poetry. Yep. And I never, ever focused on the, the words. I would hear sort of the main chorus and I'd hear the words. Phrases. Phrases, and, but I never sort of sat down and, and took a look. What the heck is this guy writing about? But it's, so I'm curious, like, does one have to um, dig deep into the lyrics to enjoy them or is it enough to enjoy just the beat i think that's why they're successful because they work on those different levels so there are people who would not normally listen to so-called meat and potatoes rock music yeah who are drawn to it because of downey's lyrics and then there are a lot of people who uh could just as well be listening to acdc who have the most moronic lyrics imaginable but the riffs are killer and you just can't help but like rock out to it right so uh so the fact that they appealed to to um, those two types of audiences mm. and more, I think, is really uh, central to their appeal. Uh, to to, to back off, off off your book in terms of rock and roll and stuff like that, I'm I'm very curious. Um, rock doesn't play on music on, on radio stations much anymore. You still got the couple new of big, new rock doesn't new, <laughs> yeah, correct new rock doesn't. Um, all is funny because Q107 will call like Pearl Jam New Rock or something like that, right? <laughs> That's 30 years we're, ago. We're, we're now You're 25. Playing, yeah. We're now playing Foo Fighters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> is rock and roll dead? Yeah, totally. Really? Yeah. I, I thought you were going to tell me something else. No. Do you want me to tell you something else? No. Like so. So now you can name off bands off the off the top of your head that I have no clue who they are, and, and mm-hmm. you're more involved in that scene than I am. But I take a look at the Arkells. I take a look mm-hmm. at July Talk. Sure. And I go, it can't be dead. No, I'm being facetious. It's yeah. not entirely dead. So they're, and uh, but in, uh, those two bands are doing well. But I'm hard pressed to name others who could fill Massey Hall tomorrow, or yeah. the Air Canada Center for that matter. Sure. Like I feel like Arcade Fire is the last rock band that'll fill the Air Canada Center, mm. and they didn't even fill it. 
No, uh, which uh, shocked the heck out of me. Well, they did the they one night. They put on a show. Oh, that was one of the best shows I've ever oh, seen. They put on a show. Yeah. But uh, but a lot of people aren't filling the like Lord didn't fill the Air Canada Center apparently, you mm. know. Um, I think live music uh, at that scale anyway uh, yeah. is, is in trouble. But um, no, I no I don't think rock is dead. Uh, and one of my favorite bands the last couple of years is Weaves. Do you know Weaves from Toronto? No. Okay. Well, listen to them I'll and check you you Weaves. Weaves, yeah, Jasmine Burke and company. Um, but I do think in terms of popular culture. Yeah. It's nowhere near. Like people were groaning, like, "Oh, there's no rock album nominated for best album of the Grammys." It's like, well, no, because they all sucked. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, uh, is Imagine Dragons the future of rock That's and roll? That's the band. That's the band that has that song Thunder. <laughs> oh, is it? That's the one that Cosby. I, I can't name a song by them. All I know is I've heard them on the radio, and I think, yeah, yeah. oh god, rock and roll deserves to die. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would to call them rock. I, they're they're some pop band. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I've been, but I I feel like rock is going to be what jazz is now, like mm. primarily appealing to a niche audience and an older audience. And yeah, um, I mean, there's uh, there's so much exciting new music. I mean, I still review new music all the time. I'm never short of things to write about or be excited about. But um, uh, but yeah, four guys playing two guitars, bass, drums. Mm-hmm. That's kind of over. I think. That's sad. In my opinion, I I I love rock. I I just love. Well, so do I. And it's just yeah. again, it's like there are obviously still people it doing it. In terms of pop, yeah, it's not. It's not rock is not pop anymore, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's R and B, it's rap. Yeah. Yeah. And pop. Yeah. 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 And things are cyclical, and things sure. will go around, and things will mutate, and that's all great. Yeah. And uh, there will always be amazing music. Like I'm not. A sure. pes- I'm not a pessimist. Fair enough. Fair enough. Like I'm never short of new music to listen to. I want to go back to lyrics. Sure. Um. And and my brother brought this to my attention. So on their on Man Machine poem, there's a couple of songs. Um, there's a bunch of songs. <laughs> there's about ten. But Actually, not that many. Um, it's a pretty tr- trim is album. It, is is yeah. it what blue? Yep. And there's um, in in a in a world possessed by possessed human by mind. the human mind. It's got it's got a uh, three words in there. Exciting over fear appears in both of those songs. Hmm. Uh, I'm not expecting you to know why or whatever, but I'm curious. Maybe you do, but the, I don't. The <laughs> question: the question is, um, did Gord ever use similar themes or similar words in a variety of different songs? Oh, I'm yeah. curious if All you the ever time. came really. All the time. Okay. A lot of common motifs, usually on the same album. Yeah. Like on Phantom Power, there's this weird recurring motif of edible audio equipment. <laughs> like okay. Something that makes the headphones edible, and then other, like uh, there's not, something else is edible, or somebody eats something else I don't think it's really weird um, uh, uh, doing the dishes comes up a couple times um, but and yeah I mean through his entire career uh, death and water come up all the time really yeah well New Orleans is sinking sure. for starters nautical disaster for another yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 but, but course, course. many many other songs together yes yeah and what's he wearing on stage during the last tour Jaws exactly I've I've I think I'm on chapter three or chapter four of your book, but somewhere at the, at the beginning stages, you 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 talk about the Josh T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Do we know what that meant? No, because he he didn't, he didn't give any it. interviews. There wasn't. There was right? one interview with Mansbridge, yeah. and that, that's the only thing. Um, but everything he did ha- had was There's full meaning. of intent. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they were a different T-shirt. It was like the same uniform. Yeah, and and I look at that. I watch a man with terminal cancer wearing that shirt, and yeah. what do I see? I see like a swimming innocent and a beast 
uh, about that's to right. attack the unsuspecting victim, right? Yeah. So that's that's laden with meaning for me. It was interesting because at the concert, so my friend Greg is was taking. He tried to get to the third show. He went to the second show. Mm-hmm. And he says, take a box of Kleenex. I go, mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting. I'm watching the show. I'm enjoying the music. But then I'm also going, this guy's got cancer. Mm-hmm. And he's singing. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, so I was studying him. He's reading the lyrics. Fair enough. I mm-hmm. can't take anything away from that. Of course, that. yeah. Um, but I go, how does he still do this? Mm-hmm. You know? And then just watching him and, and watching the band and... Um, it was interesting just just watching that, knowing what his body's going through, mm-hmm. and trying to figure like how does one do that, mm-hmm. right? Because previous to him, you had David Bowie, mm-hmm. who, who passed, didn't perform, who didn't perform, but he ma- apparently he made the album while he was dying. Like he nope. knew he was dying. Was, nope. Isn't that no, the story? He, he had he had cancer. He was being treated for cancer, but it yeah. was not terminal when he made the record. He found out it was terminal. Apparently, the week he was making the Lazarus video, which wasn't his idea either, by the way. So people um, uh, impart great meaning to the imagery in that video, Mm. which is kind of a coincidence. Apparently, Bowie wanted a performance video, and the director was like, no, I've got this idea where it's a song called Lazarus. We're going to, like, strap you to a bed and all this stuff. Um, And no one knew that this guy is, like, dying. Apparently, most people who played on the record didn't know. Only the producer did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, But he wasn't dying when he made the record. That's my point. Okay. So he made the video... In December 2015, and so you, after he was declared terminal, he only lived like another month, I think. From, wow! Because he died early January 2016. Yeah, yeah it was right at the beginning of the year. Sixth, maybe. It was anyway, crazy. Uh, yeah. So that's a bit of a myth that that record was was fully cognizant. Now, mind you, he's ob- mortality is obviously on his mind if you're sure. going through chemo and uh, yeah, and and you're dealing with cancer. So. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know whether, again, I haven't read the full book, but did you talk to people about, you know, he knows that his journey is coming to an end mm-hmm. and he decides to, like, release two more records? Oh, at least. Right, at least. Uh, people are saying there's more unreleased stuff. There is, yeah. Um, he creates this project, The Secret Path, the charity and everything with his brothers. The, the project started in 2012. Started earlier. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so long before the diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. But like it's, it seemed that his life was busy, and and I guess the media spotlight was on him, mm-hmm. you know, so that amplified everything. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious if you spoke to anybody in terms of his work ethic, mm-hmm. the, the last year or two of his life. I didn't because there was. Uh, there's very much a cone of silence around the bands mm, and fair. people people close to them during that time. Yeah. Uh, for obvious raw emotional reasons. Sure, sure. But I would say his work ethic is not inconsistent with the rest of his life. He's been okay. And and he always had a m- bunch of things on the go. He uh, you know, put up many solo records. He was always scoping out new collaborators. Mm. Um Apparently, he had talked to members of Arcade Fire about doing something at some point, mm. uh, pre-diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, you know, he did a record with the Sadies. Um, he was very serious about studying dance with his friend, Andrea Nan. Wow. Uh, they did several choreography pieces together here in Toronto. Um, uh, his, his advocacy with Waterkeeper. Uh, yeah, never a shortage of, of, of things to do. Yeah. So, in that sense, it's not out of character at all. So, in the last two years of his life... 
post-diagnosis, two months after his diagnosis, or maybe a month, a month after his diagnosis, he starts making Introduce Yourself with Kevin Drew and Dave Hamlin, um, which is... Oh, I didn't know that. started out, okay. Yeah. And then, uh, so they did like a week's worth of sessions, and then he had another seizure and another craniotomy, and then a bunch of treatment, and then the hip tour happened, and then Secret Path happened, and then so a year later, January 2017, they did another week session and that those two sessions for him introduce yourself mm. um so he also made a record with uh the dinner is ruined who are brilliant um like avant-garde n- noise improvisers mm-hmm. um and they all formed part of his his solo band the country of miracles along with julie Dwaron and josh finlayson um and there's some apparently there's some record he made with bob rock i don't know I think that was made before, though, okay. bef- pre-diagnosis. But that's just floating around, and who knows if that'll come out yeah. or not. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I mean, I don't think he was super, super busy. I, 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 he kind of haunted Toronto that year. People, there'd be all these sightings, right? Because he always wore the exact same thing, so he was pretty easy to spot. Yeah. Um, so people would spot him at various shows, and uh, and rumor has it he was writing as well. So, but. All things considered, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't. I don't think that's a large amount of work per se. Yeah. Because most of it was done in short bursts. Yeah. And the rest of the time, I'm sure he's just dealing with his life. Sure. You know. Wow. What kept the band together? I, I read somewhere, you know, that someone says the quote that we loved each other. Mm-hmm. You know. Is it as simple as that? You know, because he was so involved. You know, he had his own mm-hmm. projects he was working on, mm-hmm. his own interests that he was working on mm-hmm. outside of the hip. Mm-hmm. Was it as simple as love that kept that band together? Well, they didn't like it when he went solo. That's only kind of become public news recently, and Rob Baker has admitted as much publicly. Yeah. Um, but uh, but they did stay together, and it's I mean it's this element has fascinated me as a now forty six year old man, mm-hmm. uh, and as someone who's watched a lot of bands come and go, a lot of peers sure. or friends of mine. Um, you know, their music things fall apart for various reasons. Marriages fall apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's fascinating to me what really glues these things together. So some bands stay together because it's a very commercial, like, first of all, there's a commercial crutch, right? Fair. Like, why would I quit this thing? That's Unless yeah. it's completely intolerable, why would I quit, right? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think that was the case with this band. Um, I think they all genuinely enjoyed it, seemed to me anyway, mm-hmm. as an outsider. Um, and... There really just did seem to be this all-for-one, one-for-all mentality from the beginning. Mm. Um, kind of us against the world, uh, uh, five musketeer kind of thing. Um, and they were very protected. They were very protective and they were very protected because they were very commercially successful early on. That really, I think, enabled them to put up a wall around them and kind of avoid a lot of the compromises other bands have to give into, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is they're not prone to excess like they're, they're not uh you know they're pot smokers but they're not like never any rumor of anything else no and and they're not lavish spenders um so i mean i think they're just very level-headed hard-working people mm-hmm. who grew up in very supportive families and they're you know uh and i think that that's what kept them together more than anything and i, I just don't think any of them had enough of a creative itch uh, that they felt couldn't be scratched inside that band. In the band, yeah. Yeah, uh, Downey being the exception. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Uh, now Paul Anglois put out a couple of records, uh, solo records. Uh, Rob Baker has two records uh, with another band of his. Um, Gord Sinclair, interesting to me, uh, never put out a solo record, and he's the guy who like wrote most of the songs early on in the band. So I'm kind of really curious what he does musically mm. next. Uh, Johnny Faye did some production stuff, and he sits in with a couple other bands. He's playing in a country band in Gravenhurst. Um, uh, yeah, but the hip the hip was a machine, and they were brothers, you know. Yeah. So uh, I do think that the love really kept them together, and and trust. Yeah. It's interesting because you call, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is the story of Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip. Um, Not my choice. Okay. <laughs> the publisher's. Publisher's choice. They, yeah. want, they wanted an SEO-friendly subtitle. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> um, they let me have my arty title. Yeah. And I Why'd said... Why'd you pick that title, Never Ending Present? Well, I had a short list of titles, yeah. and some of them were super obvious, like, Fully Completely. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> which yeah. you know is not true for an unauthorized biography. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, long time running actually was also on the short list before I knew the name of that movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really like this one because uh, first of all, it's from a record I love that I think is really underrated, which is his first solo record, Coke Machine Glow, a record that I don't think would be included in an authorized biography. Mm. Um, and. Uh, and also because it works on so many levels. My, and I have to say that my lady, Helen Spitzer, chose the title. So I have to give All her right. full credit every time I talk about <laughs> this. Um, I mean, it, it, it's an obvious pun. Like, it's a gift. Fair, yeah. Uh, but it also sums up their ethos as a band. Uh, they never wanted to look back. It was always about the next show, the next tour. What's the next album? You know, they could have just played their first three records over and over again for their entire career, and people would be happy. I think so, yeah. Yeah, D- not interested in that. And every night when Gordani was on stage, it was about what's happening tonight. What connection am I making with the audience tonight? Yeah. What am I going to say on stage tonight? What dance moves am I going to do tonight? Um, and that's why that's why people went to see them over and over and over again. Uh, you know, I, I found this weird connection with Deadheads uh, that I did huh. not, not expect to encounter. Mm-hmm. But there is a not insignificant crossover audience there. And, I mean, I don't... I really can't stand the dead. But... Uh, but I know that what people look for from the dead is that sense of something special happening tonight, mm. right? Like tonight, maybe they'll get on that wavelength and we're gonna all going to write it together and it's going to be amazing. And I think people look for that in, in Downey's performances as well. Um, and as a common th- like just talking to people in the book, it came, it came up as a common theme so often about manifesting the present, like yeah. living uh, for now. And finally, I was writing about a guy with a terminal disease. Mm. And you can't help but no, live in the never ending present. Yeah. yeah. Um, so did does uh, again they weren't you're, they weren't a, a big band. You know, they, I, I want to talk about Grateful Dead for a quick second. Yeah. Um, they toured all the time. It seemed. The hip or the dead. The dead. Uh, yeah, I think so. But have they done since Jerry Garcia passed? There's been a whole bunch of different configurations. Some of them will go out together yeah. as one unit, some as another, and then they'll do like the Dead and Friends or something. No, okay. that's that's not it. It's something like that. Yeah, um, it's not really my scene, so I don't know. But they've uh, the surviving members have played together a lot in various configurations. Do you think the Hip does the same? Does something similar? Do you think they'll ever play? No, I could never see that happening. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. Never say never in this industry, but. Uh, no, I think I think 
But I mean, like Prince's Revolution toured without Prince. That was weird to me too. Yeah. Did you see that or hear about that? Yeah. You went to it? No, I didn't. Oh. I didn't go, but I heard about it. Yeah. yeah. What'd you hear about it? That they just did it, and yeah. I don't know. Some people liked it. Some people, yeah, they didn't get it. It had to be weird. Yeah. I was of that two minds. I, I'm a huge fan of Prince, and obviously at that particular stage of his career. Yeah. Um, and I was like, do I want to go to this? I don't know. Like, I love Wendy so much, and uh, <laughs> but do I want to go to this? Doctor Fink. I mean, come on, one of the greatest keyboardists ever. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I ended up not going. I just huh. felt too weird about it. Because I, you know, maybe because they they had sort of a, a long career. I mean, it wasn't a short flash in the pan. You saw, I'm trying to see if there's a, is there something in common with Nirvana? Sorry. Uh, in terms We're of talking about the hip. Yeah. Okay, but no. the, so there's the hip. Is there something in common with Nirvana with uh, Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. dying? Yeah. Obviously the 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 circumstances are different. I understand yeah. that. But but then all of a sudden out of that. You've got the Foo Fighters, right? Right, which is so, a totally different band, totally led, different led band. by one member of Fair Nirvana. Enough. Right. Yeah, so I'm curious if, you know, maybe not as the hit, but is there something that comes out of it? Does, hmm. you know, like you said, um, you know, Faye was one of the main songwriters. Sinclair. Or Sinclair, sorry, yeah. uh, was one of the main songwriters early at the beginning. Does he, mm-hmm. you know, you said you're curious. Is there anything there? Does he come out with? Does he start a band? I hope so. I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. Rob Baker's described himself as semi-retired. Both he and Sinclair back up a woman in Kingston called Emily Fennell. Okay. Um, so that appears to be their... I mean, they were doing that. They've been doing that for a while. Okay. But that appears to be their main musical outlet right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, and Langlois hangs out with a bunch of buddies. Uh, he has his own record label, and so he puts out solo records, and then he has this kind of collective with his buddies called Campfire Liars Club. Like I said, Johnny Faye plays in this country band. So um, keep it. I think they're going to keep busy musically. I, I don't know whether you're right. Whether they yeah, I mean that's their life. Group together. Yeah, and in terms of uh, like financially, they're investors in this this marijuana company. So, which, who knows what's going to happen to that industry? I don't know if I heard about that. Uh, it's it's uh, they've been on the front page of the report and business section frequently. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't read that when, magazine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whenever there's a, a story about pot stocks, they always run a picture of the tragically hip and talk really? about that company. Okay. Yeah, so um, I may have heard, but it doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's their uh, retirement. That's their retirement. That's a retirement plan. <laughs> yeah. So they they can make that's whatever the, music which, they want for the rest of their smart, career. Which yeah. is a smart one. Um, you you didn't have the cooperation from the band itself. Yeah. Um, for their personal reasons. Um, how was it getting the cooperation from their, their peers, from their friends? Uh, hit and miss, but mostly hit. Yeah? So, um, I mean, I've been a music writer for a long time, and I've been a musician for a long time, and the hip and I have a lot of mutual friends, mm-hmm. um, many of whom were happy to talk. I mean, this is really, in many ways, a series of love letters from people they worked with to the band. Yeah. Uh, a lot of everybody had nothing but positive experiences with the band, and we're more than happy to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I talked to a lot of the producers of the record. There were records. There were only a couple I couldn't reach. Um, one of them died several years ago. One of them died shortly after I talked to him, oh, wow. um, which really, to me, sums up the. Uh, you know, if anyone says it's too soon for a book like this, it's like, well, people are dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and some people just respectfully declined, said, sure. you know, I like your writing and uh, I best of luck with this, but I, I just, I don't want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, pr- I appreciate you sure. just telling me that. Because yeah. some people just didn't bother writing back. Yeah. You know, um, 
but yeah, the 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 authorized part was a big stickler. Some people um, didn't ask at all, like didn't care. You're writing Michael Barkley's writing a book about the hip. Absolutely, I'll talk to you. Okay. Other people really wanted to make sure if everything was clear with the band. I said, well, they're not uh, they're not endorsing it. I mean, my plan was always. Fellow writers told me, you know, if you're interviewing a C, if you want to write a story about a CEO, mm. the answer is always going to be no from the CEO, right? If you want to profile uh, Jim Balsilli or something, yeah. right? So uh, then what you as a writer do is you do your homework and you interview everybody you can around. And then you tighten the circle. You say, look, I've talked to all these people. Yep. You get closer and then you go to the subject again and say, look, this is all the work I've done. You can comment or not. I'm writing the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to comment? No. If Okay, if not, would you mind? Here's, I'd like to fact check some things with you. Would you like to respond to this or not? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? So that's basically what I did. So, I mean, I, I never suspected that they would say yes, mm-hmm. uh, but I thought they would at least submit to fact checking or yeah. something. Um, so that's how I did it. I just started wide and then and then uh, interviewed people closer to them. And I, I knew that nobody who currently worked for them would talk to me. Sure. And I didn't, I didn't, wasn't interested in talking to families because it's not that kind of book. Yeah. And that side of the story is, is entirely their story to tell because their family life was never public. So that's, uh, that's, that's up to them, right? Yeah, it's interesting. As, as big as they were in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, it was never a gossip thing. They never... Nope. Very tight-lipped. Yeah. And, like, you never... Like, they were never hanging out with much music. They were never, like, on e-talk or whatever. Like, uh, that was just not what they did. They just really wanted the work to speak for itself. And, uh, um, yeah. Was there anything new that you learned about Gord and the Hip as you were researching and writing the book? Um, That, That most people would not be aware of. I mean, I think there were times when there were uh, tensions in the band or between band and management. Like, I found it fascinating that one of their original managers hated Day for Night so much and told them to go back and re-record it. What? Yeah. That was yeah. good. Out. He said it's un- unlistenable. <laughs> said nautical disaster is a hit. The rest is shit. Go make it again. Yeah. I was like, really? <laughs> and this I heard from his own mouth. I'm okay. like, Wow. Okay. And did they list? They didn't listen. <laughs> no, they said uh, it might be better to have you as a friend as a manager. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and also the the making of of Downey's first solo record, Coke Machine Glow, was fascinating to me, just because I love that record so much, and uh, I love hearing how records get made, especially records that are kind of outside what they normally do. Right. Mm. What um, was different about that record? Uh, everything that he didn't want anything hip about it at all. He didn't record it at their own studio. Okay. He didn't even want to use a guitar or a guitar pedal that came from the hip. He wanted it to be all fresh. Yeah. Made it in Toronto uh, with all these new friends of his. Yeah. And um, it was recorded at a whisper. There was no... Nobody wore headphones. Apparently Downey wore like little... Like like uh, tiny earphones just to yeah. get a bit more attenuation on his vocals. But... Two mics on the drum kit, bass drum, overhead, that's it. Very simple. Everyone played super softly, mm. and uh, but it sounds huge. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a bit of a down-tempo record, and, mm. and there are definitely parts where it sounds a bit hushed, but it, like it just, 
the sound is so beautiful. Wow. Uh, so finding out details like that were, were interesting to me. And also, uh, I was talking to somebody who worked with them, and, and I said, and he said, well, what's, he asked me, like, what my impressions of stages of their career were, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, I kind of lost touch in the early 2000s. I felt those records were kind of adrift. And, and, uh, and then I really liked the Bob Rock records, but I felt like those were more, like, downy with Bob Rock, with the mm-hmm. band happening to be on them. And uh, he's like, huh. You're exactly right. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> like, I knew nothing about this, and yeah. I just, this is just me as a listener yeah. saying, oh, doesn't these records sound like they don't really know what they're doing. And apparently mm-hmm. that's when people weren't really getting along. And, you know, and then the Bob Rock records were very much a strong personality at the fore. And then the last two records were very much all of them back together again and really mm. working together and getting friendship right, as they said, you know? Mm. So, just knowing stuff about that and how that informs the music was fascinating to me as a fan. That's and also, all that stuff is very human stuff. Like, there's nothing scandalous in that. And maybe no, the, maybe the band doesn't want that dirty sure. laundry aired. But if that's mm. the dirtiest of your laundry, I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> fair. That's, no, that's, that's really fair. Um, is there... I, I've heard people ask, is there is there another... Like, who takes their place? Is there another, quote-unquote, Canadian band? Mm-hmm. You know, or Canada's band? Mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, is that a fair question to ask? Is it something yeah. that needs to be discussed even? Yeah, I think they're the last. Yeah. I do. I think that um, huh. uh, there's there's two things to talk about. There's the commercial aspect and there's the the uh, the spiritual aspect. Okay. Or And so the commercial aspect, um, you know, I kind of feel like I don't know other than Arcade Fire who that next arena rock band is. Hmm. You know, and Arcade Fire are an international band, right? Yes. So we were talking just before about the state of rock music. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine a Canadian rock band selling out arenas. They'll sell out Massey Hall and they'll sell out, uh, you know, multiple nights of the Danforth or something like like what Daniel Caesar did with five nights of the Danforth. Yeah. Not that he's rock, but um, uh, but they yeah. sell out the ACC. Yeah, I I. I highly doubt that. I don't think Arkells and July Talk and, and, and bands like that will do that. I mean, I, I hope they do. Mm-hmm. I hope, like, I wish them all the best, but um, I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. And then you have the, the spiritual element, and um, uh, I feel like uh, Downey was so unique as uh, a lyricist that it's hard to find someone else like him. Mm. And it's interesting to me what people think of his lyrics. Like when when the Humboldt tragedy happened, people were like, this is such a weird thing to say about such a horrific thing. But I heard people say this like, oh, I wish Gordowney was here to write a song about it. It's like, Gordowney would actually never write a song about this. Like he was never that obvious. No. And most of his songs aren't narrative. Like maybe, are you thinking of Stomp and Tom? Because Stomp and Tom would would definitely write a song about this. Yeah, he'd write one in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And have it out next week. Yeah. Um, but but Downey was not that kind of writer, hmm. you know. And people put that on him because of what? Because of maybe Wheat Kings, uh, because of Fifty Mission Cap, I guess. Yeah. But even Fifty Mission Cap, like the chorus again, has nothing to do with the verses, and it's like he kind of puts this whole other layer on top of it. Uh, like you should look to Paul Brandt or somebody. Like look look to like a country musician or hmm. somebody who's more straightforward lyrically to 
to write a humble Bronco story. Yeah. Or Christ, Tom Cochran did write the humble Bronco story. Big League came out 30 that's years right. ago. Yeah. And that's literally about yeah. a guy getting hit by a truck in the wrong lane. Yeah. Uh, a hockey player. Yeah. Before he makes the NHL. Yeah. That, I heard that randomly on the radio and it was so eerie. I'm like, did, should there be a trigger warning for this or something? Because this is a weird song to just hear randomly in the middle of a mix. Yeah. Next to some jokey station promo right sure. now this week. Yes. <laughs> you know? That's a heavy song. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So spiritually, I, I, I seriously doubt that a, a rock band will replace the hip. Um, and then you have... But in their wake, I, I do think a lot of people write uh, more easily. Side and four. I mean, people around the world are Googling Morningside and 401 to find out what that means, you yeah. know? Um, now, mind you, he is... I think rappers have always done that. They've of always course. talked about their neighborhoods, right? Hip-hop and folk music, yeah. both. Extremely regional. Locality is central to the appeal of yeah. both folk and, you know, and, and hip-hop. Um, and... And Drake is particularly regional because uh, he really only sings about Toronto. In terms of Canada, he sings about sure. Atlanta and Dallas and everything else, yeah. too. But um, the Canadians, Canadianisms in Drake are very specifically very Toronto. Toronto. Yeah, yeah. That is so true. Yeah. So I, I don't know if people in Vancouver or Calgary or Winnipeg uh, or Saskatoon or Trois-Rivières or Sackville, New Brunswick relate, yeah. relate to Drake. Relate this, to Drake is The much. same way the 416 <laughs> and the 905 do, you know? <laughs> That is so true. Yeah. Michael, thanks so much, man. This has been a great coming. conversation. Thanks so much. I really enjoy your show, and it's a great honor to be here.